So today we're continuing our look at the book of Romans. We've been looking at the book of Romans for the past several months. And we're, we started chapter 9 last week. And this week uh, we're at the second half of chapter 9. And today we're looking at verses 19 to 33. And we're asking, what questions have you always wanted to ask God? What questions have you always wanted to ask God? And I think you'll see when we look at this portion of Scripture this is one of those topics that seems to come up or be invited for us to think about as we look at this portion of Scripture. So if you would, Romans chapter 9, starting with verse 19, this is where we're at today, and I'll read for us. It says this, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the privilege that it is to be able to read it together today. We thank You, Lord, that You've allowed us to gather together in this place to study Your Word, to learn what Your Word states, to grow in our walk with You as a result, to understand our need for Your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we carve out this time, right at the start of our week, we pray that You would work in our hearts and work in our lives and help us to grow in our walk with You. And we commit this time to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, do you have a curious mind? You know, when you consider yourself somebody who is uh, curious in general. So, um, and what I mean by that is, what do you do when something like a question pops into your head? Do you search out the answer? Do you ask others for their opinion? Do you see if you could find out the information online? What do you do when you're trying to answer a particular question. Uh, this week, 
I had the privilege to uh, have my youngest daughter, Julia, with me here at work one day. She didn't have school uh, one day, and, and uh, I didn't want her to just be home by herself. So I said, all right, today you're going to come to church and work with me. And so I got rid of my desk a few years ago, and if you've ever seen in my office, I have a circle table now with several chairs that go around the perimeter. I just find it's easier uh, to work at than a desk, particularly since I'm often meeting with people, and I thought this would be a better meeting space if I get rid of the big old desk and just make a circle table and put some nice comfortable chairs. And the chairs that I actually got for others to sit in are more comfortable than the one that I sit in, so I think I need to upgrade the chair that I sit in now. Um, because I'm jealous of the guest chairs, right? But Julia got the chance to sit on one of the guest chairs, and so she was sitting across from me, and uh, I made a deal with her, and I said, honey, you know, obviously I guess it'd be easy to just be on your phone today and, and stuff like that, but I said, I want you to do something more productive, and I said, I'd like you to, to read a book. And she looked at me and was kind of like, what book are you going to encourage me to read, Dad? <laughs> And uh, do you ever read C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters? Do you ever, that's a good one to read. It's very interesting to read. And so I said to her, I was like, let me make a deal with you. And so I took it off the shelf. And I said, if you read this book before we leave today, and we had to leave at about, I think we had till quarter to five. Uh, so she had from nine in the morning till quarter to five to read this book. And I said, if you read this entire book today... Uh, I will give you 10 bucks. I'm going to pay you 10 bucks. I'm going to up the ante. She's like, you'll give me 10 bucks? I was like, yeah. And uh, she looked and the book was, uh, I think, 128 pages. So she was like, I could do 128 pages before we leave. So she did it. But in the midst of that, so I'm on one side of the desk doing my work. She's on the other side of the desk reading that book. And I thought, this is fun. I was enjoying it, and partway through the day, she would ask me questions. She would pause her reading, put her bookmark in, and she said something would be prompted from her, her, her thought process. She was reading the book, and she'd say, Dad, why is this the case? And we were talking some good theological questions, and uh, then she asked me something uh, about something that I remember reading in a book maybe 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, and I, I said, you know what? I have a book on that very subject. And I happened to remember what book it was, and so I, I pulled it off the shelf. It was right behind me, and uh, we talked about that. And I thought it was interesting because she had really good questions. We were able to discuss these things. It seemed very fruitful, and I liked the fact that we were able to pursue some of the answers. So I think it, it can be good to have a curious mind. I think it can be good to ask useful questions. I think it can be good to try and find answers to our questions, and I think... When it comes to God, most of us have an abiding curiosity in regard to Him, at least to some degree. I think even people who don't believe in God still have curiosities in regard to those who do believe in God, or even, you know, they maybe even think, well, if there is a God, I wonder if this, or I wonder if that. Why does He do what He does? Or, or why does He do what He does in the way that He does it? And what will he be doing next, and how is it going to impact me? These are the type of questions that I tend to ask. These are questions that you probably ask as well. And is there something that you've never maybe fully asked God yet that you'd be curious to learn more about? You know, if you could ask God a question and have your answer given to you almost with immediacy, what kind of question would you probably ask him? 
And I bring that up just to kind of set up what we're looking at today in Romans chapter 9, because when you look at the second half of Romans 9, so we're at Romans 9, 19, and we're, we're going all the way to the end of the chapter today, but we're shown a few things that the Lord knew we would have questions about. He knew we would have questions about these things. This passage, what it does is it explains some of the background details of God's plan for mankind's redemption. But it becomes clear when we're reading this kind of passage that God may often do things that at least initially seem puzzling to us. At least at first, they might seem, you know, things that would almost make us uh, question what He's doing or why He's doing it or how He's doing it. But I think in time, as our faith matures, our appreciation for His manner of accomplishing His work, it tends to deepen. But for now, it's likely that we'll have a few questions, a few things that we'd like an answer about. And one of the things that I want to point out as we, uh, as we take a look at this is this idea of, you know, do we question God's motives? Do we question God's motives? When we're thinking about these questions that we would bring before God, do we question His motives? Look at verse 19 down to verse 24. It says this, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles." Now, in the previous half of this chapter, the portion that we were looking at the last time we were together, the Apostle Paul spoke about things like God's calling. He spoke about God's election of people in regard to salvation. And I think these are subjects that people have debated for thousands of years, and they continue to be debated, sometimes hotly. Today, I have to admit, I used to engage in those debates with the goal of trying to convince people of my perspective regarding those subjects. Do you ever engage in a theological debate with somebody trying to convince them of your perspective? you ever found it to be fruitful? <laughs> I usually found that it would just result in arguments or needless debates or animosity between friends. I remember one time spending, oh, it's probably about three hours uh, arguing details related to certain prophetic things in Scripture that are kind of foggy to us when we look at them. We're, we're not fully clear on what they are. But I remember spending about three hours arguing about these things with a friend of mine who's another pastor. Do you ever wonder what pastors talk about? Right? And uh, afterward, I was thinking, that was so fruitless. And so when you look at some of these things, I, I think to myself, I've gotten to the point where I don't really try and argue about things like that. I've kind of lost my desire to argue about some of the debated theological things. I've, I've gotten to the point where I'd rather just let the Word of God speak for itself and let the Holy Spirit do the convicting in our hearts to help us understand truth. But I don't tend to find it very fruitful if I argue these points, because I believe that the Word of God is true. I believe the Word of God is accurate. And when we look at what the Word of God says, it's clear that it's supposed to be what informs our beliefs. And when you look at a portion of Scripture like we looked at last week and like we're looking at this week, I'd prefer to just stick with what it says, even if it reveals things to us that might make us uncomfortable, or even if it reveals things to us that we might find somewhat difficult 
to explain. And I think some of those things that we find in this portion of Scripture may fall into those categories, because God's methods and motives in choosing to save sinful people, I think can be very difficult to explain sometimes. And I think, you know, trying to understand uh, some of his motives and methods can stretch our faith and stretch our thinking a little bit. And when you look at this portion of Scripture here, it gives us a picture that's used multiple times in Scripture. So this, this isn't the only time this picture is used here. But at times, God's Word speaks of people like we're clay in the potter's hand. Right? So are you familiar with that analogy? Have you noticed that as a pattern that comes up elsewhere in Scripture? We're spoken of at times like clay in the potter's hand. So God who gave us life also has the power to mold us. God who gave us life also has the power to shape us. He also has the authority to use our lives however He chooses. But admittedly, we don't always understand or appreciate the way that He molds us or what He chooses to do with the finished product. Now, in recent years, my wife has discovered that she really enjoys making pottery. And she actually has access now to a wheel where you can, where you can you know, actually make the pottery and do all this. And uh, from time to time, she'll even say to me, hey, do you mind if I disappear for a few hours and make pottery? And I'm like, go for it. And I've noticed that she started to fish her friends into this process too. She's like, hey, what are you doing? Nothing. Hey, you want to go down to Newtown and, uh, and make some pottery? And, and uh, then sometimes she's by herself and she's making pottery. And she's made some really neat things. I, I enjoy watching some of uh, her artistic creations take shape and see some of the uh, creative things that she brings home. And, and, um, and you know, I'll, I'll see, usually I see it in the kitchen first before it finds whatever part of our house is going to be its new home. But to my knowledge... Not a single one of her artistic creations have ever questioned her design choices. I don't think a single one, now I could be wrong, I've never directly asked you this question, Andrea, right? But I don't think any one of them have ever asked you, why did you make me like this? Why did you make me like this? I wanted to be, I wanted to be like a, a tall, slender vase, and you made me, uh, you know, like uh, a, a shape that, that is more stout, and I wanted to be less stout. I wanted to be more tall. I've never seen them ask you, uh, uh, you know, a question related to why you designed them to be like they, like they are. And obviously, I say that jokingly because it'd be illogical for something that's fashion like that, uh, even when we use personification to describe it, to question why it was designed that way. But isn't, exa- isn't that exactly what we do in regard to our relation with, relationship with the Lord? Don't we question His design? Don't we question his methods? Don't we question his motives? I think it's precisely what we do with the topics that make us uncomfortable in this particular passage of Scripture as well. Because we look at these things and we say, all right, wait a second, I don't fully understand how that works. So since I don't fully understand how that works, maybe I ought to question the one who divinely revealed it to be the case. Consider what Paul teaches in this portion of Scripture. He tells us that God is perfectly just when He shows His wrath, and He's perfectly just when He shows His mercy. So if God shows His wrath to someone, all we can say is that God was just and the person deserved it. God is just, and the person He showed His wrath to deserved it. And if God shows His mercy to someone, 
All we can say is that God is kind, and the person He showed His mercy to didn't deserve it. If God shows His mercy or His wrath, these are things that are within His his wheelhouse to be able to do, within His uh, perspective or priority to be able to do. In this world, there are those who live under the wrath of God. There are those who live under the mercy of God. Those who trust in Jesus Christ are the recipients of His divine mercy. Those who reject Jesus will forever experience the wrath of God. And these are things that ultimately are in God's hand to facilitate and decide. I think because many of us desire to see all people saved, and I think that should be our desire, should it not? I mean, I desire to see all people saved. I pray for people I don't know. I hope you do this too. By the way, I have an interesting um, opportunity in working here at our church because right across the street there's a hospital. And inevitably, uh, during the course of any day, there'll be at least two or three times that I'll hear an ambulance go by with its sirens, sirens blaring. And I always think to myself, all right, for the person that's in that ambulance, this is probably either their worst day or their last day. It's probably either their worst day or their last day. And I'm hoping that the other cars going by, that there are believers in those cars actually praying for whoever's in that ambulance being taken in. And I'm thinking to myself frequently in regard to salvation, this may be that person's last moment before they have the opportunity, or, you know, their last opportunity to trust in Christ. This is the finale for many of those people that I hear in those ambulances going by. This is the finale. Will they trust in Christ or will they persist in rejecting Him? And I think we have the desire to see people saved, and we want to see all people saved, and because um, when we look at Romans chapter 9 and it tells us that not all people are going to be saved, I think that can make us a little bit uncomfortable. Doesn't that make you a little bit uncomfortable? I mean, if your heart desires to see all people saved, but yet the Scripture reveals not everyone's going to trust in Christ. Some will and some won't. Not everyone's going to be rescued. Not everyone's going to be redeemed. This is a decision that rests ultimately in the sovereign will of God and not the efforts of man. Isn't that a little bit uncomfortable? I think it's supposed to stretch our faith a little bit. But here's the thing. If we've learned to trust God for our daily bread, and we've learned to trust that His Word is accurate, is it too much of a thing to trust that His plan for the redemption of mankind is also perfect? His plan, His methods, His motives, perfect. Salvation is a work of God from start to finish. And we can trust our God to do a good job. We don't need to question His methods. We don't need to question His motives because His ways are perfect. I want to show you a portion of Scripture from Isaiah chapter 55. So I'll have you turn this to this in the back, please. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I think that's a fascinating portion of Scripture to consider, even in regard to what we're reading about in Romans chapter 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. What's the Lord revealing to us? There are things that we don't know. 
things that he understands, things that he perceives, things that he can see that we cannot see. And so in the meantime, what's he asked us to do? To trust him. That whatever he's doing is perfect, that whatever he's doing is right, that whatever he's doing is righteous, trust him to facilitate it. Let's jump on to the next part of of Romans chapter 9. And I want to ask another question that's this. Do you question why God invites certain people to be part of his family? Look at verse 25. You have the Apostle Paul quoting from two Old Testament prophets here in these verses, 25 and following. He says, as indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And then it says in verse 27, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pause there for just a moment. I'm grateful for my extended family. Uh, I actually am very close to my extended family. We had, we had some visits this week, this past week, uh, from family who came down and visited and others we talked to on the phone. Um, but I'm also entertained by the different personalities that make up the cluster of people that are part of my family. There are people in our family that are very straight-laced and very conservative, and there are others in our family that are very easy to rile up. And there are those that fall somewhere in between. There are younger members of the family, older members of the family. Um, we shouldn't do it, but the, those that are easier to rile up, we tend to, you know, some families play board games and watch TV together. We just have a game called Rile Up, the person that's easy to rile up. And these are the issues that tend to get that person fired up. So let's fire them up. And then we fire them up. And, uh, you know, there's some, some issues uh, that I discovered that my father and I have. Um, he's, he was upset with me yesterday. This is true, by the way. This is how strange my family is. He was upset with me yesterday when I was talking to him about our, our weekly grocery budget. And he's like, well, what do you get? And then he found out that we eat primarily chicken and aren't really buying a lot of pork chops and steak and things like that. He's like, you're not feeding my grandchildren steak? That's what he said. I was like, well, not usually, Dad. I was like, I I said, but we do feed them. He's like, and his comment, I kid you not, this is exactly what he said. He's like, what are you trying to turn your household into Venezuela? That's what he said. I was like, what does that mean? What does that mean? I know that that culture is right now in like a financial crisis, um, but I was like, how does that connect to whether I feed my children chicken or pork or beef? What's the connection with this, Dad? And, he, and so I was like, oh, this is classic. So I happened, to knew, I happened to know that he was making steak for my sisters, and they were all coming over to his house last night. So I said, all right, guys, here's the deal. This is, this is tonight's game. Provide video if you can. Talk about my grocery budget with dad they're like all right noted i was like take notes emphasize that we're buying more chicken than we are beef or pork all right bring it up work like a charm work like a charm i even got video from one of my sisters my dad got all riled up he's like i can't believe he's just feeding my grandchildren chicken by the way, background, my dad owned a grocery store when I was growing up and had a great meat market there. This is like an offense to him, right? You know? And he's like, just chicken, what is the deal? I raised you better than this. You know? It's like, okay, dad, I'm not buying steak every week. 
But the point is, you know, I look at our family and I get a big kick out of it. I, I actually wish we could convince a TV uh, producer to come and just sit in on a holiday meal or something along those lines. They would get a lot of good material that could make for a good sitcom. Our family's very eclectic. It's got, you know, people of different backgrounds and, and it's very entertaining and we enjoy each other's company. And I bring that up because when you look at the family of God, is not the family of God rather eclectic? You know, when you think about those that the Lord chooses to welcome into His family, it's rather eclectic. There are quite a few people who become part of God's eternal family that, initially speaking at least, we would not have expected to be included. And that's what the Apostle Paul's trying to illustrate in some of these verses here. So have you ever questioned why God would allow certain people to become His children? You know, specifically, when you hear about people that maybe make a deathbed conversion, Do you think that God should honor their faith? Some people would say no. Some people would say yes. I'd point us to the thief on the cross right next to Christ, who in his final hours trusted in Christ, and Christ assured him that he would be in paradise with him. Or what about, you know, when you read about people who who led terrible lives or maybe were involved in committing unspeakable atrocities, and yet they come to faith in Christ later in life. Do you rejoice over their repentance, or do you question God's willingness to accept them? There are certain people that were living during the era in which the Apostle Paul wrote this book that questioned God's approach to bringing people into his family. Among the people of Israel, there were plenty of people who specifically had a distaste for the Gentile nations. And they could not imagine considering people of a Gentile background as equal brothers and sisters in faith. And yet that's what we can see God was facilitating and is facilitating even today. And Scripture tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, regardless of their background. That's something that God was bringing to pass in the generation that Paul lived in. That's something that he's bringing to pass in our generation, but it's also something that took people a while to get used to. It wasn't something that they expected God to do. Let me show you a portion of Scripture from Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It tells us there, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What other qualifications are we given there? Are there any nationalities or ethnicities or backgrounds or other things that are listed in this In this uh, portion of Scripture, what does it say? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. But so often, humanity likes to add kind of an addendum to that and an additional thing. And maybe if you're from this background, you have a better chance. And maybe if you're from this background, you're more deserving. And that's not what Scripture actually teaches. Scripture teaches that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Now, this, by the way, was not new information. Even though those that were hearing Paul teach this, um, some of them were offended by Paul teaching these things. This wasn't new information. And so he decided to give a little bit of a history lesson through the Old Testament prophets to try and illustrate these things. And so he quoted from the book of Isaiah, and the Lord revealed through, the, through Isaiah, through that prophet, those who were not my people, I will call my people. When you look through the book of Hosea, You can see that, that the Lord said that, that the the day was going to come when those who were not His people were going to be called 
His people. It's a prophetic reference to the fact that God was going to save Gentiles. And then in the book of Isaiah, we're also told, through the number, or excuse me, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So again, Isaiah was told these things and prophesied these things, and we could see that only some who descended from Abraham in the physical sense were going to be saved, but that the Lord had eternally intended to call unto himself people who at one time would not have been commonly expected to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord had decided to do. And here's the strange thing about this reality that I think makes this rather personal. The fact that God calls people unto himself that you wouldn't initially expect to be part of his family, that seems wonderful when we're first on the receiving end of that calling but it can sadly become less appreciated over time once we start to settle into our new designation as children because we forget that we were undeserving recipients of that blessing. And then sometimes there are those who have watched others become undeserved recipients of that blessing and again question God's methods and question God's motives. But I think Part of the challenge we're given in this portion of Scripture is, to, is a challenge to not allow that to become the attitude that we develop. Because God has not called us to be smug. He hasn't called me to be a smug person. He hasn't called you to be a smug person. He's called us to be grateful. You know, we should thank Him for everyone He calls unto Himself. We shouldn't disparage God calling somebody just because they may not be exactly like us. His family has some eccentric characters in it, as well as some who are, who are prim and proper, probably just like your extended family and certainly like my extended family has within it. His family includes Jews who trust in Jesus. His family includes Gentiles who trust in Jesus. And I think instead of resenting those that God welcomes in, what we're being invited to do when we look at a portion of Scripture like this is to adopt his mindset and just rejoice over his kindness in welcoming all kinds of people unto himself. The fact that God does this is amazing. Isn't it interesting, too, in addition to this, when you look at some of the prophetic portions of Scripture that have yet to be fulfilled, that we could see God in the process of fulfilling... And you can see that this has been God's plan all along the way. Let me show you an interesting portion of Scripture from Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, it says this, After this I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what does this Scripture reveal to us about God's future plans? What does it reveal to us about the process He's bringing humanity through right now? We have people from every nation, people from all different tribes, people from all different areas, people from all different backgrounds, people from all different languages coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being blessed with this privilege. But again, the Apostle Paul, in the context that he was in, was speaking to some people that just couldn't understand that God would call all sorts of people unto Himself, particularly because they were dependent on their own righteousness. So let me finish up by pointing out one additional thing from our Scripture today, and that's this. 
It's a final question. We see it in verses 30 down to verse 33. And it's this, do you still wonder how to obtain righteousness? Do you still wonder how to obtain righteousness? Look at what it says in verse 30. It says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But the Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Gentiles were not seeking a right standing with God. Historically, as we look at this, Gentiles were not seeking a right standing with God. And yet He graciously offered that standing to them. And then on the other hand, the people of Israel were seeking a right standing with God, but they were convinced that they could obtain it through their ability to keep His law, which they actually couldn't keep. And what Jesus did when He came to this earth is He kept the requirements of the law for the Jews and for the Gentiles. The law is fulfilled in Him, and His righteousness is available to all who call on His name in faith. And I think this is one of the most difficult concepts for many people to grasp because we refuse to accept God's plan for us to obtain true righteousness. In fact, the Scripture tells us that Jesus is both an offense and a stumbling block to those who would rather rely on their own fleshly efforts to please God. And the way this works out is like this. It's hard to accept that Jesus has done the work for you when you'd rather rely on the works of your own hands. It's hard to accept the fact that Jesus has already done the work for us if we'd rather rely on the work of our own hands. It's hard to accept that righteousness can only be received as a gift when you've been spending your entire life to earn it like a wage. But righteousness is a gift. By the way, this is advice that I hope you, you hear but don't actually take. A great way to drive yourself crazy if you'd like to, okay, is to attempt to earn righteousness instead of receiving it. So if you want to drive yourself crazy, try to earn righteousness instead of receiving it as a gift. And by the way, it's also, it also has the side benefit of driving away all your friends, driving away all your associates, because the second you believe that you've obtained righteousness through the works of your own hands, you become completely intolerable. You'll judge everyone else who doesn't meet your arbitrary standard. Your spirit will convey a sense of condemnation instead of a sense of mercy. And you'll minimize your need for Jesus Christ while elevating your idolatry of the work of your own hands. And admittedly, this portion of Paul's letter to the Romans is the type of Scripture that it reveals that we probably still have a lot of questions that we'd like God to clarify, but again, we're also shown a beautiful glimpse of the undeserved grace and mercy of God that's been shown to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, who makes us righteous with His righteousness as a gift through faith in Him. So as we look at this portion of Scripture, even though it talks about God's calling, even though it talks about God's election, even though it talks about the fact that God makes a family full of people, you wouldn't necessarily have expected him to welcome into his family, and yet he still does it. We don't need to question God's motives. We don't need to disparage those he graciously invites to be part of his family. Rather, we can rejoice over the fact that he's willing to take sinful people like us 
and make us righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And as we finish up, I want to show us one more portion of Scripture. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and it says this, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Reminding us that Jesus Christ took our sin upon Himself so that He could bless us with His righteousness as a gift to replace the sin that we were enmeshed in. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the privilege that it is to be able to read it together today. And Lord, we recognize that we don't deserve Your goodness. We don't deserve Your mercy. We don't deserve Your blessings. But at the same time, You graciously and willingly display these things to those of us that You've called unto Yourself. Lord, we don't fully understand the nature of Your calling. All we know is that Your calling rests in Your sovereignty. And Your decisions are perfect. And there isn't a single person who experiences Your wrath that can't say that they don't deserve it. And there isn't a single person who experiences Your mercy that, that can say they did deserve it. Lord, we don't deserve Your goodness, but yet at the same time You choose to show it. And so we're grateful that You make that choice. We're grateful that You bless us in the ways that You've chosen to bless us. And Father, we pray that we would have hearts that display the kindness and the mercy that You've displayed to us. That as we interact with people, that we would rejoice over the fact that You're willing to call people who were not Your people, and call them unto Yourself, to help them recognize their need for Your Son, Jesus Christ. To enable them to to stop walking in spiritual darkness and spiritual blindness and to begin to see the reality of Your calling and Your desire to be part of our lives. Lord, it's difficult for us sometimes to be patient with others while they're in that process. But we pray, Father, that You'd help us to be patient, recognizing that You displayed Your patience and Your kindness and Your compassion toward us. Lord, the further we we are from the moment when we first came to faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ, the easier it can be for us to forget that we were undeserved recipients of Your grace and Your blessings. But we pray, Father, that that moment would not mentally be far from us. We pray that we would remember that day very crisply and freshly. And that we would rejoice in the fact that You intervened in our lives. We were heading in a direction that was the opposite of Your desire. We were heading in a direction that was the opposite of what we were designed for. And You intervened. So Lord, thank You for doing that. Thank You that we can trust You in all sorts of areas. Thank You that we can trust You even in this area of calling and election. And these details that are taking place behind the scenes in regard to our salvation. Knowing that what You decide is right and just. And for Your glory. And ultimately for the good of those that You've called unto Yourself. So Lord, thank You for reminding us of these things from Your Word. And and Father, we're also grateful that if we have questions, that we can bring these questions before Your throne. And sometimes we experience the answers to our questions through seasons of prayer. And sometimes You use another brother or sister in Christ to speak the truth to us. And other times, and very often what You do, Lord, is You reveal Your answers to us as we continue to dig into the content of Your Word. So Father, as we begin this week and as we begin each and every week gathered together looking at Your Word, we pray that we would find answers. 
for the things that you want us to understand. And we pray that as we come to understand these things, that our trust in you would deepen and our faith would mature. And we thank you again, Lord, for giving us the privilege to be able to look at this portion of your word today. We commit ourselves to you now and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.